humility is a fantastic concept. And it is fairly sparse when you think of the entertainment industry. But what does it really mean? It's not just being humble. It's also accepting that you don't always know all the answers, that you have things to learn. My interview subject today, Tobias Schleiser, is a cinematographer, and he loves being a cinematographer. This is his passion and the only thing he ever wanted to be and wants to be. But he's had an incredible long career with all kinds of different projects, and he's worked consistently with the same directors. They go back to him over and over. People like Peter Berg, Bill Condon. One of the things that makes Tobias stand out is his humility. When he got his first opportunity to DP a major budget studio movie with Peter Berg, he wasn't sure that the studio would even go for it with him, despite him having decades of of experience shooting. He kept in mind that he still had things to learn. I find that part of him uh, excellent as an interview subject, but I think he can teach everybody a lot just by always being willing to learn and develop. And the way he talks about shooting Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you can tell he was open to the fact that he maybe didn't know everything going in. And he ended up learning stuff, applying old lessons he'd learned and doing an excellent job. So I'll hand it over to Tobias. Your career has spanned decades. What was the first thing you did that made you think in life, I think I want to be a cinematographer? You know, it was a little bit my, definitely my upbringing was a big influence to me. I, my father, growing up in, you know, I grew up in Germany and my father was a mountain climber, but he started as a mountain climber. He actually quit school when he was like 14 years old, a climber, and uh, he was very good at it. He became one of the top German climbers at, at his time. And uh, really to finance his expeditions, uh, he started doing slideshows and you know, taking pictures and, and doing slideshows. I remember traveling with him sometimes after his expeditions coming home. Um, he'd take me to the slideshows that he gave. And, uh, and then afterwards, he started um, making films, documentary films about his expedition. So I really grew up around cameras. You know, he had like his... 16 mil years and my mother was his editor and she edited his movies and so you know i grew up sleeping under steam bags and <laughs> uh, and but he was really a one-man show would he film him how would he film himself climbing or he would just take all the qu- equipment with him and film the areas he was climbing in well he was on expeditions he was really like he gave the camera to his his partners they climbed with him his climbing partners sometimes or you know like but it was really like he was on his own really for most of that time um not by himself he wouldn't climb by himself he was expeditions with other climbers but he kind of documented it and that's how he financed his expeditions for most of it. And then he became a little bit of a celebrity in a sense where he had his own TV show uh, after his expeditions where he would just speak, you know, in front of the camera and and, and, and showed some of his uh, parts of his films that he made. So I, wow. I, I grew up with that and, you know, he had a dark room, we had a dark room at our house where I started 
taking pictures very early in my life, having cameras around me and, and getting in the dark room. And I was really, I really enjoyed the still photography at the beginning. And um, I, I lived very close to a television station in, in Baden. I grew up in a small town, Baden-Baden, that had a small television station. And a friend of my parents, actually, who was an actor, Robert Mine, he when he would come and, and act in some of the TV shows he was on, he stayed with us and, and he took me, you know, I was like seven or eight years old. He would take me with him onto the sets. And I was so fascinated at the time, with like the lights and the cameras and everything. So, What was your interested, interest sort of geared towards the narrative side or the photography and less towards documentary? Or I know it was, well, it was interesting you say this because I did not enjoy that. I mean, I saw, you know, how my father operated by himself. I'm more of a collaborator, I think, and I enjoy being around people. And actually, it was interesting. There's a magazine called Cameraman that my dad got reading about Fassbinder's movies and you know there was this TV show called Eight Hours Isn't a Day that's translated into English. That was like a miniseries that Fassbinder had on, and I saw the the TV show and I also saw the production stills in this in this magazine. I was so fascinated by the cameras, lights. It was just so much it was more interesting to me than being a documentary filmmaker and say, oh, that documentary cameraman. So was Fassbinder an early sort of influence? influence. Definitely him and Vin Wenders. Um, yeah. uh, were definitely, that was the thing that we got to see in German television. Um, I was definitely more interested in the narrative storytelling. But then I wasn't, you know, I, I grew up and the photography came easy to me in a sense, uh, like framing and, and lighting and everything. But then I wasn't quite sure when I finished high school. My parents actually had moved to Canada. I came to visit them. I thought maybe I stayed there a little bit. And then I found out about this film school in Vancouver called Sam Fraser. And I thought, maybe I'm going to go to film school and see if I have interest into directing or writing or editing. So really, that was my beginning. What was that film school experience like? I loved it, actually. I think it's really important in a sense, to go through film school. But for me, it was actually right from the beginning because I had background in photography. I had background with cameras. I started shooting, like as soon as I started in first year of film school, I started shooting student films with the, for, my, for, the, for, for people that really wanted to be directors. That's where I fell in love with cinematography. Um, I never really looked back. <laughs> I never looked back, right? And, but it was also the encouragement, I think, what happened to me is because the first short from there I shot, my director and everyone, you know, my fellow students went like, wow, this looks so great. You're good at this. And then I got to shoot second year student films in the first year. And second year, I got to shoot the fourth year student films. Like I, I just found what I love doing and... I never pursued the directing. I never pursued the editing. I think it helped me having done a little bit of it. From what I know, you started with some shorts, some docs, and then a little bit in TV. What were, what were the first jobs? A lot of people come out of film school and it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> now what? It was, a, it was a bit like that. It was Vancouver. Now it's completely... I'm actually in Vancouver right now doing a Netflix movie. I haven't been here for, oh, cool. I haven't worked here for 20 years. But I started in Vancouver, but it was in the early 80s. And 
when I got out of film school, there was really one or two movies, one television show, and that was it. It was a very quiet film town. But Wait, so is this the first time you've shot back there since the early 80s? Or no? I, no, I stayed in Vancouver till the mid-90s. And oh, okay. then I left too. So, but it's been like, I think my last movie was in 1997 in Vancouver that I shot. And then since then, I've only been back here a few times for commercials. And this is my first It's blown movie. up since then, though. <laughs> it's blown, oh, my God. Right now, there's like, uh, I think something like 70 shows here in town. Um, wow. It's, it's really crazy. Um, but back then, like you were saying, there back was... then was nothing. So I got out of film school literally where it was like, you couldn't, the union was closed. Like all the, you know, the, the, the few movies that were shot, they were union movies. And it was like pretty well impossible to get into the union as a camera assistant or becoming a camera assistant. So I was lucky my, you know, students, fellow directors from, from film school, one of them was Charles, or is Charles Wickens, and still uh, a very close friend of mine. And he, we got out of film school and, and got a, documentary to shoot for, uh, to make for the national film board and that was when i came right out of film school and then i i, I realized like i wasn't gonna make i wasn't gonna go the normal route at starting as a camera assistant i'm mean, like well, i can't get a job as a camera assistant i might as well try to be a cinematographer and i ended up buying a 16 mil camera and basically saying like yeah, I am. And, but it was a slow start, right? I'm definitely not a success overnight. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> my friends from film school, Charles Wilkinson, Harvey Crossland was another fellow student of mine that uh, I did one of my early documentaries with him. So I really got back into documentaries from kind of where I grew up with, which is an amazing learning experience as a cinematographer, right? Because you learn about how to use available light, how to work fast, how to, you know, tell a story while you're shooting. You have, you have to react. You have to edit in your head uh, because you're really the one that's the front line. So that was really helpful. But my my love for cinema was really narrative story. So, but, and then I just started out of film school. We did a, um, another documentary for the National Film Board about a small town that was creating murals to get tourism back into the town. It was like an old mill town that was shut down that they created. They invited artists to this small town to make murals for tourist attraction. And, and we did a documentary about that town. Charles Wilkinson, the director, he ended up writing a script as we were making this documentary. And we used film stuff from the National Film Board and, and kind of made a movie with no money at the same time as we were shooting this documentary, just because we were so into telling stories and making out the film. So, you know, at the beginning, it was like I was making $50,000 movies, $100,000 movies. I was going to ask, you were shooting 16 a lot of the time? 16 millimeters, yes. 16 at the beginning. I mean, I know there were a few series in the 80s you did. What was the first feature? as a DP, like a big one that felt like the jump for you where you were like, oh, this is going somewhere. I, I did like a slow progression really in my career yeah. from, from, you know, I always thought like every movie I just try got a little bigger budget. So it was a very yeah. slow graduation. I guess it was a movie called The Top of His Head in Toronto. I had done like as a, 
uh, additional photography on a documentary for Rhombus Media uh, from Toronto, and Lee Fitchman was a producer on that. And it was actually I did some additional camera on a documentary that shot up north about the Toronto Symphony Orchestra that traveled through the Arctic. And I met Lee Fitchman on that. He ended up producing an independent movie called The Top of His Head. Peter met the director. It was in 1986. Yeah, you know, I got along really well with him, and he gave me like a break on that movie. That was like a million dollar movie, I think, at the time, which was a big break for me. Yeah, because I was in Vancouver. I was one of the there was not many cinematographers in Vancouver when the first TV. You know, there was a lot of in the late eighties with Jump Street, uh, for example, or MacGyver. There was there was television movie, uh, television series, and television movies made. I was sort of one of the few DPs in town, a cinematographer in town. So I got to the lower budget TV shows and television shows. I, I, I was sort of in line for that. So I got my first start in television here. What was the first, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but you've worked with Peter Berg and Bill Condon many yeah. times. Those are collaborations that seem to have been successful and, and turned to. What was the first film you did? How, how did you start working with, with Peter Berg, for example? Uh, with Pete, I did the rundown with him, the, the first movie. But how it came about, I mean, I have to go back just a little bit, but that, that was a big, you know, obviously um, break in my career. So in the 90s, when I was very busy in the television world, my dream was always to shoot, you know, bigger movies. It was hard to break out of this television. And at the time, I, I saw some younger DPs that were in the commercial world ending up working with like, you know, commercial directors that they get into movies and they jump into movies much faster, right? And uh, mm. and I felt like this, in the television, I kind of got stuck there a little bit. So I made a real decision to, to you know, get into commercials first or stop doing television movies at the time and, and, and get into the commercial world. And hopefully, and that's how I moved to to the States, moved to Los Angeles to really get, start doing commercials and, in, yeah. and and then meet directors through that. Well, I didn't meet Pete Brooks through a commercial, but I ended up doing commercials for Tony Scott. I got a real quick, and it was interesting, I got a break in the commercial world through actually one of my friends that I gave a job to as a production designer. I did a small movie called Quarantine and we looked for a production designer. Uh, and uh, I had a friend who was basically a set decorator and set dresser. And I got, I had been looked for a production designer. And I said to my director, Charles Whitman, I said, you know, I know this guy. He's right now a set decorator, but I know he can be a production designer. He's got great taste. And we hired him and he did an amazing job. He ended up working in the commercial world as a production designer and then started doing commercials and then ended up hiring me to do commercials. And I got to LA, I worked and he was already, you know, he had moved from Vancouver to Los Angeles to direct commercials. I ended up doing commercials with him. We did a very successful uh, campaign for Audi, and that got me into this world of commercials. And, and Tony Scott found out about me, saw my work, and hired me on commercials, which was like an incredible break. 
and uh, I worked on those commercials. He worked with the operator, Martin Sheer, who's done all Tony Scott's, a lot of Tony Scott's movies. And I got along really well with him. And he is close friends with Pete Burke. I guess having sitting together and Pete said, I'm doing my this movie, The Rundown, and I need a DP. And Martin said, oh, I just worked with this guy that's kind of coming from Canada and hasn't done that much, but he's, you know, I, his work is great. And when I first, when I got to meet him, we, we met, you know, the, the Chateau Maman, which is a very kind of Hollywood place. I was surprised that he had interest in me because I hadn't done a big movie yet. I hadn't done a big studio movie yet. I had done this movie for Antoine Fuqua called Bait that I shot in Toronto. That also came through the commercial world a little bit because um, I had just done one commercial with him and he ended up doing Bait and he hired me on that. And, uh, but that was a smaller movie still. When I met Pete, we had a really good conversation over lunch. And then he said, well, I really want you to shoot my movie. And I'm going, wow, wow. It's just like out of, you know, out of like a half an hour conversation. I go, wow, he hasn't, it's his big first break with the studio movie. Yeah. And uh, I go like, it was for Universal. Universal never going to let me do this $80 million movie. <laughs> the interesting thing was it never it never came up. And that was yeah, the start of our long relationship. Do you think that um, your, your history at that point, with you had so much under your belt in terms of commercials, TV, some movies in Vancouver, that you didn't pose a risk to them? I mean, it is interesting, but you weren't truly coming out of nowhere. You had a lot of you had a lot of work you'd done already. Yeah, I had a lot of work, but it wasn't really, I felt like it wasn't, like I was still surprised, right? Right. I, I, I was surprised, but it is also like a, a, a definitely a thing that Pete, you know, he's, he has very strong will and, and I think people respect, you know, obviously already respected him so much that when Pete said to them, is this the guy I want to use? And yeah. uh, yes, I did have, you know, I've, I've always feel like I've, I've managed to have a good reputation or a reputation of being responsible, even though I didn't have. Did you have, how, how did the rundown go as sort of the first big, you know, $80 million you said, like, that's a big jump. Um, it, went, it went great. But I mean, I, I've always felt like I was, I would never take something that I wasn't really ready for. Um, yeah. I, I made it decision from from the start that I wouldn't jump onto something that I didn't feel I could do. But yeah, I was I was ready for the rundown and it went really smooth. You know, I started a great relationship with Pete. We got along really well and uh, it was a fun movie and he definitely made it into something better than the script was actually at the beginning. You know, I, I really liked that movie. And you jumped into uh, what is like a Great movie, also based on uh, based on a great book. Friday Night Lights came really fast. Friday Night Lights was um, you know, that was really a movie that I that I also loved making, and that changed my career. Pete came to me. He didn't even tell me about Friday Night Lights. We 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 met again for lunch just after the rundown. We were just talking, and he comes to me and says, "Like, what do you think about American football?" And <laughs> I go like, Pete, I've never watched a game. It's not. <laughs> but I like sports. I, I, I grew up skiing. I grew up mountain climbing with my dad. And I, I was tennis, but I was never 
a team sport kind of guy. I mean, I've played a little bit of soccer, but it was not really my sport either. And definitely not American football. So I just said to him, Pete, I know nothing about American football. I've never watched a game before in my life. And I don't really, it's not really my interest. Why are you asking me this? And he goes, well, because I'm doing a, I'm doing this movie Friday Night Lights, which is about, you know, uh, high school football. And you're probably not the right DP for me then, right? And I'm going like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I, I do like working with you and, you know, and maybe I can talk. So, but he was, you know, he was quite concerned about the fact that I didn't really know anything about that, A, about that life, you know, about high school football life or about that genre or about... American. How did you convince him that you were the right one? You know, I said, I, I went back and I said, let me think about this and let me see if I can present you something, how I would make, you know, how visually I would see this movie. Cool. I came at a time because I was in the commercial world a lot. A lot of my directors that I worked with, they did these visual presentations for the agencies. So I thought like, and that wasn't something I hadn't done before for movies, but I thought that like, I'm just going to do a visual presentation for Pete and, and show him sort of my ideas, how I would do this. And, you know, I got into the, I read the book and I did some research and, and I think one of the photographers, William Eccleston's photography really inspired me for the look for this movie. And I also thought, like, my documentary background, I felt like it should feel really real. So I came, I did a visual presentation for him. I went, I mean, I went to bookstore, found a bunch of books, photography books, made photocopies for him, and, and kind of did the presentation. Got the book, Dummies for Football, and uh, and read that, and and then met with him again. And then when I think once he saw the visual presentation, made for him, I said, okay, I get it. I think you you understand and then i'm so happy about the movie because i didn't know anything about it. it's a word that i didn't know and i think looking back when people see this movie they really feel we captured that essence of that time or the essence of the sport and yeah it's a beautiful movie i mean a lot of your movies are but i think you did sort of combine like you said a sort of documentary feel with something cinematic the lighting feels cinematic but the action feels a little more um, genuine, less staged, and it definitely created a it created a feeling, and it's a it's quite a story. So that's cool. Was that the was that the first time you did one of those kind of visual presentations, or you'd done that? Was no, I hadn't done that before. That was the first time. I think now, of course, it's way more common, and yeah. it's also much easier to do. So I did fight in a life with people. Then Bill Condon came to me with Dream Girls. I came from Vancouver when I wanted to start getting into music videos, into commercials. I came, sometimes I flew to LA, set some meetings wherever I could and brought my three-quarter tapes with me for my demo reel. And uh, one of the places where I saw a lot of you know music videos done was propaganda films at the time. I set up a meeting with the head of production, Tim Clausen there. I came down there, I met with him, and I showed him my reel, and he said, well, it's great, but, you know, I don't have anything right now. Uh, but uh, So I walked away from this meeting going, like, it was a good meeting, but nothing, you know, what's going to come out of this right away. Literally half an hour later, I get a call from him going, like, you know what, I just thought about this. Like, we have this director, Bill Condon, that's doing Candyman 2 for us, and he doesn't have a cinematographer. And, after I met you, I thought maybe, you know, you could have a good chemistry with Bill. Like, you seem to be a kind of guy that you might, you know, respond to. So he goes, I'm going to set up a meeting for you with Bill Conner. 
And the next day or the second day afterwards, I got a meeting with Bill and a little bit same as with Pete. Like after our meeting, he goes like, I want you to shoot this movie for me. And uh, it was just like a personal connection. I think that's, that's a lot about our careers or our business or, or how we get jobs. It's like that. It's a personal connection where that someone can see yeah. how they want to spend the next three, four months with you on a movie Yes, site. I've heard that before. It's it's so true, though. People forget that you have to want to be working in the trenches mm-hmm. with someone for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that that's what came back with Dreamgirls, was that you guys had We've done, done that before, and I was not the obvious choice for that movie with my credits. Uh, by far, I've never done a musical. I've never done the theatrical lighting, but... Bill is a good friend. He's super supportive. He wanted me to do it, but then I, same thing. I kind of went and said like, okay, Bill, and he needed to present me to the studio too, which was, you know, he, he came to me before he even presented me to the studio saying like, this is the cinematographer I want to use. Uh, I did a similar thing. I went out and I did like a visual presentation for Bill and saying like, this is kind of the images I see. These are the tones I see. I did this presentation and, and I think, that kind of, you know, that presentation, he, he felt strong that I can do it and that I had the right visuals. And from there, you know, that film was huge. But I want to talk about how uh, you did Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 with Tony Scott. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's interesting because you mentioned that the, the Tony Scott way back when you were learning this or developing this commercial career. Yeah. And he's such a strong visual voice. What... Tell me about working with him and taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. I've been a huge fan of Tony Scott movies, right? You know, movies like True Romance or Top Gun. I mean, I always thought he was such an incredible visual storyteller. Yes. So when Pelham 1, 2, 3 came out, I was very excited to work with him. Yeah. It was one of the hardest movies I've ever done. Uh, wow, really? Day. Shooting in the subways of New York uh, with Tony Scott, with like Denzel Washington, John Travolta in those trains underground uh, was just, you know, we were, we shot for 10 weeks underground. Uh, Tony did not want to shoot on stage. We had like one cabin, one, one train built, but 80% was done real. I don't know if everyone who's listening can understand or appreciate, but if you can, you know what he's what to, what you're talking about, Tobias. Just that a subway train would be tough to shoot anything in, just size, yeah. you know, is not ideal spacing. But to do kind of with a visual, I, I'm just imagining the demands of what you were trying to accomplish visually. Maybe the lighting that it became really complicated. It became really complicated. We were shooting you know, four uh, floors down, there was one tunnel that was kind of, we were able to shoot in, but there still was like the live third rail that's very dangerous. Uh, we had trains going on different tracks, going by us every five minutes, the, the dust of the old brick dust that came up. I mean, we had to wear masks. You come out of there like out of a coal mine in the morning. <laughs> totally like to shoot with three, four cameras at the same time. Uh, it was just, it was really hard. And, and was that one all 35, I assume, at that 35, time? Yeah, yeah, 35, yeah, which would be much easier now. But it was interesting. We actually tested. It was like just at the verge of the red camera had come out. There was right. a Sony uh, F35 that was there. We actually tested them 
uh, but it wasn't film was still you know the right thing to use but it was difficult and uh, it was also you know one of those movies that uh, we started shooting in the in that station where Denzel Washington is in the control room in the subway control room where right. you know, everyone working and controlling the subway and Tony wanted to have you know, like a light coming from below the desk. We built the production designer, Chris Seeker. He built this desk where we had LED lights in the strip of LEDs that I could control remotely. But like literally two days before we started shooting, all the desks were built with these uh, built-in LED uh, you know, lights that we had. Uh, but two days before we started shooting, Tony came to me and said, you know, I want this light to be even lower than what you have in the desks, right? I want it to be like right underneath him. I want this low under light. And I go like, wow, we have all these LEDs set up right now. Why, why would we want to change this? They're pretty good in my <laughs> mind, right? But if, if Tony wants to do something, so we cut a hole into that desk and we put this at the time, we, did, we couldn't build the uh, LEDs because they were not, available rather than available so we put the old type of kilo flows underneath it with a plexiglass over it so now he was really dense up with be really lit from below well the first day Denzel arrives on set in the first setup Denzel comes on his desk and he puts all his papers that he needs for his character that he's working on he puts them over the he puts him over my light, right? And I'm standing next to Tony. I'm going, to, okay, well, Tony, I think we're going to go back to our LEDs because this is not going to work out well. Uh, because he's, you know, he's covering the light. It's lighting him. And Tony goes, well, go tell Denzel. I've never worked with Denzel before. I've really <laughs> met him. Once. He goes, tell Denzel that maybe he can move his papers away from this light, right? And I'm going in my mind like, how am I going to tell Denzel that he can't put this paper in it? Well, it's a Tony Scott movie and he's telling me to do this. I'm going over to Denzel and I'm saying to Denzel, is there any chance? The look I got from Denzel was like, I wanted to die right on the spot, right? I'm, I can't tell, like, but it was one of the things, Tony, that it was a battle for the first two weeks in this Set were had they had they ever worked together before? They had worked before, yeah. They did Man on Fire before, right? Right. They uh, have a whole history. They had a history, but but Tony Scott did not want to be the one. He he sent you to be the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> and just like I felt like I got all my wind taken out of my sails on that first day on that movie, and then you know Denzel was wearing glasses. I did not know. I mean, I learned so much on that movie of how to be prepared and be yeah. ready. Like things that I didn't think before as much. Like Tony really taught me like you have to think about everything that you could possibly think of. Uh, Denzel, we, we never really did proper wardrobe tests uh, and and I didn't know that he was going to wear glasses. He comes up and he has, puts glass, reading glasses on. And so now everything is, when he's looking down, it, everything is reflected in his glasses, right? And we use non-reflective glasses that the props guy changed. It became, I mean, it was just that desk, that light became a little bit of a nightmare. So when I think back, when I think back about that movie, it's, it, it was really hard from the beginning. And then, you know, there were, there were things like, you know, we used different 
trains, for example, like there's one train that Tony wanted with the lights in the front of the train he liked, but then he'd like the motorman's cab of another train better. So we would go and shoot the exterior of the train, then that train had to move out, another train had to move in, and I had to have everything pre-rigged. And of course, we pre-rigged the motorman's cab, but when they drove it in, they drove it backwards in, which was, you know, there's two trains on both sides, yeah. two motorman's cabs. So we had rigged the wrong side of the train. Uh. It took us two hours to get the light from one end. He is end. such a visual perfectionist though, right? So that part of it is that you have to get every little specific. Yeah. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. What was the first project? We talked a little bit about how that was just on the cusp. Like you tested some digital mediums, but what was your first project where you went all in on a digital format? Well, I was really scared of digital at the beginning. I was so used to shooting film. Well, you grew up again, going back to the beginning, you grew up in film sports. I grew up with film and that's what I, you know, that's how I started shooting. And I was so used to, looking because my first you know, 10 years I operated my own movie whenever my first small movies where it was one camera only I always operated so I got so used to looking through the camera I could tell the contrast I could tell whether my my exposure by just running you know once the camera started flickering because you get the flick of the shutter that that told that I could tell just looking through the lens where my exposure should be or whether I was too dark in certain areas. It's like a contrast filter a little bit for me. It's so and, cool. <laughs> it's so cool that you have that that sensibility because the filmmaker coming in today would not, you know, they have they what they see is what they get in the digital media. Yeah, yeah. I for me, I just got so used to looking through cameras, and when the, the shutter flickered, that gave me exactly the idea where if I couldn't see something after the shutter started, I knew I was too dark in the shadows. For example, I mean, to the point where you know, once I got into the multi cameras and I got into Pete Burke's world and Tony Scott, where I had to work with many operators, I wasn't operating anymore. And but I would still walk up to the camera when I was finally looking at my lighting and I'd turn it on and off just to see what it was. And then I'd walk again way and then the operator would start shooting. But I always checked my lighting by running the camera for a couple of seconds. So I was really like I was a film person and I was in battleship. I was in battleship for close to a year because I started prepping on it and then it got delayed and then yeah. Pete kept me on to do a lot of the storyboarding and previous. In that year, while I was doing, in 2009, 2010, while I was doing Battleship, there was this whole turnover in into the digital world with the first um, Alexa, the uh, Aria Alexa camera coming out. Yeah. And um, I came off uh, Battleship and I got back into it because a lot of times I do commercials in between movies. Uh, they said, oh, we're shooting with an, we want to shoot with an Alexa and I'm going to, oh, I'm going to shoot on film, right? And the production company goes, no, you have, you know, this is what it's going to be like. So 
I got thrown into like right after Battleship where I had to shoot my first commercial uh, on digital on the Alexa and then I never looked back. Like really? I, no, I've never I've I've done maybe one or two more commercials afterwards on film, but uh, I embraced it uh, and I realized that you know the benefits for it in in a sense. Um, you can be a little bit more experimental. You can be, you know, you can be a little edgier. You see it, uh, which obviously helps, right? Because it helps when it comes to with the directors. I can, I can light things and, and have the director be there. If I have any questions, they can see, they can sign off it. I mean, the shooting on film, when it gets, you know, shooting darker scenes, how dark do you want to go? And, and you know, every, every night going to bed was like, oh my God, I hope I had enough exposure. I loved it and I still miss that a lot, right? That, that kind of anxiety, waking up in the morning, calling the, the timer, color timer, laughing, <laughs> what were my printing lights? You know, I, I loved all that, but I have to say in the digital world, it gives you that freedom to be. And I think that's why nowadays movies look so good too, right? Because we can push, yeah. it, further. We can push it further. And it's the same thing in the TV world, right? That television looks so amazing now, but it is. It's uh, It's been an equalizer in some ways. And, and for many filmgoers and audiences, there's no distinguishing. They don't even know. Like I had to ask you, uh, so how did... <laughs> what when was the transition? Because I wouldn't necessarily know to the naked eye. But jumping ahead, because I know you know we're skipping over a lot of things. There's too much to talk about at all. But I want to talk about Mon Rainey's Black Bottom. It's obviously it's a big film. It's on it's on Netflix and it's done really well. It's gotten a lot of attention. How did you get this one? You never worked with George C. Wolf before. I'm curious what brought you onto this project. You know, it was really my agent, Lara Sackett, who I've been with forever. And, and we have very similar tastes in movies. And uh, she was the one that brought it up to me. She says, you know, um, Todd Black and Denzel. And it's because we're just talking about uh, Palomar. Yeah, no, I was going to ask if Denzel remembers some of your discussions about lighting desks. <laughs> Why? Quite honestly, I did not bring it up. <laughs> I didn't bring it up. I was too scared to bring it up. Uh, even after all those years, uh, I definitely had the support from talking about Lara, my agent, Lara Saka. She mentioned it to me. She said, you know, twice there's this movie, Marie's Black Bottom, August Wilson play. And I had seen Fences, which I really liked. And I thought that uh, did an amazing job. And, and I love the story. And I like the August Wilson plays and his writing. And she said, this would be an amazing film for you to do if you can get in there. And she said, I'm going to I'm going to mention it to Todd Black that uh, you think you'd be interested in this. And, and uh, I thought it would be an amazing opportunity. And I had actually met George only for like minutes. He came by to visit us on Dreamgirls, on the set of Dreamgirls, because he was friends with our choreographer, Fatima Robinson who had done a play for him and he came to visit her and I met him there briefly, but that was it. You know, I had one interaction with him, but anything helps, right? And yeah, I think, sure. you know, like the little things that help. So I, I've known Todd for a long time and he was just very supportive and he put me up to his foot, George, and said, George, here's, here's a candidate for you. Do you want to meet Tobias and, and or talk to him? And George did and I read the script 
and uh, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a big, big challenge. <laughs> and uh, Tell me about the challenges you knew as soon as you read it. It was described the one room, the basement room, the rehearsal room for these, for uh, the band members. Yeah. That was described as this windowless storage room in the basement without light, without air. That was kind of the description in the script. <laughs> A cinematographer's dream, right? Exactly. And it's 50 pages of it. And the yeah. room, the size is like 20 by 22 feet. And I'm in my mind, I'm going like, oh my God, like, it's, you know, the writing is amazing, but you have four actors for half the movie in this 20 by 20 foot room. Where are they going to go? What, what, you know, it's all dialogue too. There's like six minute monologues. And I'm yeah. going like, What's going to happen there? They're just going to, I just couldn't visually see. That's one of the movies where I could like, I could see it, but when I started seeing it in my mind, which I'm pretty good usually at, I'm going to, what, I I just, I'm going to, how can I make this visually interesting? What can we do, right? And that was the first thing I actually said. I was really honest with George when I spoke with him. I said, George, normally I have a really good idea about how to approach something visually. I like to come, with like an idea to the director, which is always, I think, a good thing. My, my thing is like, I want to have an idea. I want to have come in with something I can bring, even though I always say like, if I'm just bringing something, you don't have to take it. You don't have to think this is my own, sure. you know, I, I, but I, this is kind of how I see things, but I didn't have it on this movie. And yeah. I was honest with George and George said, well, why would you want to do it if you already knew how to do it? And I got like, uh, okay, yeah, I know. It was like the perfect answer. And I got like, I'm in, great hands with him yeah that's so fun <laughs> and uh, and then you know i got a call back from todd saying like yeah i think your meeting over the phone was over the phone because i was shooting actually a, a short film in in la at the time i couldn't go to new york normally i like to go when i when i really want to do a movie i'd fly to new york and meet the director you mentioned you had the problem you told him i don't have the visual uh, obviously, like the performances, the late Chadwick Boseman is amazing and Viola Davis is amazing. But how did you and George Wolf overcome the the doubt The how are we going to do it? There's so much in this room. There's so many monologues. Like, how did you what were the tools? Well, you know, George has a really, really clear vision of what this was, what, how he wanted to make this. And uh-huh. I didn't have the chance in the phone conversation to really get all that in, right? It, it happened the first day I arrived in Pittsburgh. The production designer kind of took me through the sets and to illustrations and everything, but then I had a meeting with George. Not only was it the most incredible history on uh, you know, African-American history for me, because he really took everything in depth of like the story and what this meant and not that familiar with it, not growing up in this environment or in this country. So it, I learned a lot from him just in terms of the meaning and, and what he wanted, how he wanted to tell the story. But he was, he just said a few things like he said for, to me, like, think of this room as a boxing ring, right? Hmm. And think of it like they're coming at each other, like in a fight, except they don't have gloves. They use their words, right? And, and he goes like, they're going to go They have each one of them will have their corner. And, and he built that set. We had like poles on the side, like supporting poles for the structure that became like 
sort of like a ring, right? The, the quality yeah. of the ring. And, uh, and as soon as he said that to me, that it's, it's like a boxing fight, I can kind of visually see it. And yeah. then I suddenly realized like he's going to actually move these actors. And, you know, he's a genius when it comes to blocking from his theater background, probably, yeah. you know, slightly. And it was very simple. He goes like, I want, I want this to feel, you know, he wanted to feel the heat. He wanted to feel heat and uh, that they couldn't escape. They couldn't escape that room. Originally, there wasn't supposed to be a window even in there. That came up during our first scouts where we went and scouted them factory for the texture of the wall our production designer took us to this factory to show us you know the kind of colors he wanted to use but there was a small little storage room actually that had a small window up on top that we walked into and uh, i took some pictures of the sun coming through and we all looked at him and go like wow this looks beautiful and that actually is one of those things that could work in that room because it was a small window high up that would show the outside, but they couldn't escape that room even though there was a small window up there. I see. So you found a way to get a little light source in there that was exactly. not uh, that that still served the story. That's great. <laughs> it's a great little lesson. I know, oh. and that became yeah, that became my main light source. But it also became you know it it made that room really feel sweltering hot. He described that room really as like the belly of a slave ship, right? Where mm, they were stuck wow. in. So yeah, no escape from there. Was it also was it Alexa? You know, for Netflix, and what what did you what did you shoot on? No, at the time I used the Sony Venice camera in large format because I wanted to have the only we had to shoot 4K for Netflix, and uh, the Alexa LF had come out, but only the studio body and that's a really heavy and big camera this the smaller mini lf that i'm using right now wasn't out yet uh so i used the sony camera which is actually it's a great camera and it really captures skin tones really well um so i was really happy with it we shot large format which i wanted to use because i wanted to use wider lenses close in to be really yeah what kind of lenses do you choose when you're in some sort of like a tight quarters like that and you're tr and you're working with faces at that distance and you're trying to create a set like it must be different than say when you're choosing a lens for battleship <laughs> yes well yes definitely i thought at the beginning i thought we we're going to probably i wanted to use maybe some older vintage lenses just for the look of sure, the period yeah. but then we tested a lot of them I ended up using these new modern size supreme lenses, large format lenses. And the reason for that was when we looked at the tests, I looked at, you know, all those, I tested all the lenses with like you know, rack focus and, and for distortion and for flaring. But George really didn't want to distract anything for the, from the actors. And those were kind of the cleanest lenses, but they have close, they're very close focus lenses. So you can be close to someone, to an actor without using diopters. And they have very little distortion, which George liked. Yeah, I see. He wanted to create something closer to the theater experience, right? With that. Yeah, one. and just being, with the, you know, like there's one thing when you're away with a longer lens on someone, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel intimate, but the intimacy when you're with a wider lens close in, just feels like you're with that character. And uh, so we used as many wide lenses as we could. You know, I had to use sometimes a longer lens because I had 
we shot everything with two cameras, three cameras sometimes. There's monologue scenes we shot, the six, seven minute monologue scenes we shot in always in one take without a break. Wow. So I had to have the cameras really at the right place in that small room, right? For example, that uh, one of my favorite scenes, even though it's the most emotional scene, everyone cries after that scene is when Ben Chadwick or character Levy talks about his mom being raped and his father being killed. Yeah. That was really one of the most emotional scenes I've ever seen an actor had to go through. And, wow. uh, and I mean, you've directed, a, I mean, you've shot a lot of amazing performers. So that's saying something. <laughs> it was the most. I mean, that, that scene and those close up, I mean, that, that was a time like we, we didn't, we had like two cameras set up. I had one that was on a profile on him as he's, He's kind of retrieving into his corner and then coming up to them, talking then and then retrieving again to himself into a corner. So I had one camera that was kind of parallel to his movement, but that camera also captured the most important moment where he's talking about his mother being raped. He's kind of talking against the wall, but we had this, the camera just landed at the right place. We kind of pushed in on a slider on him and everything happened to at a perfect moment there, right? My operator, my dolly grip, my focus puller, my, you know, everything just happened to be, because you didn't want to miss that moment, right? That was just like the most incredible performance. But after that take, I, I realized I was crying throughout the take, right? And that is like emotional, right? Like if you start, wow. I mean, I, I've cried in movies easily, but I usually yeah. don't cry on set, but I yeah. really, I mean, well, like, it wasn't just me, but all bawling after that. Oh my scene. God, that's was, amazing. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. Is that sort of like, you know, as you describe how you shot it, you had two cameras, it sort of reminds me of sometimes you learn or you hear about, you know, Buster Keaton blowing up a bridge and using three cameras and like going all the way back to the beginning like that, like when you're trying to capture something and you don't want to do it again, Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Was that sort of part of the thinking was like, we want to be there and not ask him to do this a bunch of times and get every little side yes. angle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was like that. And, and George didn't want to break up. I mean, that's part of his theatrical background too, probably, right? Where it's yeah. like you get these actors into these emotional moments and you don't want to go like the first, you know, it's a bit, that scene is a huge build up for his character, right? And, and in the story. So he did not want to have them build up and then stop and then build up and then stop. He wanted to then build up and just get to that point where, you know, through the scene, he, he just had to shoot it in one take. And, and literally that scene was covered with two cameras and 90% are just those two cameras. We ended up afterwards doing some coverage on the, on the other band members as they listened yeah. to the monologue. But his performance was really the two angles that carried the whole scene. And it was my operators, my dolly clips that were adjusting to it and finding those moments and then pushing in at the right time of his performance uh, that, uh, you know, that just tells you you're only as good as your crew. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's what I love about filmmaking so much. It's one of those moments where everyone came through, right? Like I was just biting my lips when when <laughs> for the focus puller right when they're pushing yeah. in on Chadwick and and it has to be in focus you can't have yeah. a focus bus at those moments right and my first AC with the with the Estrada was just amazing he just you know, nailed it and yeah uh, 
That's funny and, though. It comes full circle because when we were speaking at the very beginning, you said that you know being around your father and he was sort of a one man band, um, but you you wanted a collaborative version of filmmaking, and that's exactly what it is. That's my favorite thing. I think the collaboration and the camaraderie and working with directors and working with my crew. Usually, I ask people what they would advise to someone starting today or even who started already, but is looking for ways to advance. Like you, you mentioned at one point you thought maybe I should try commercials because that seems to be the quicker path to features. Or if you were giving someone advice, knowing the landscape as it is now about what, about their career as a DP or in a camera department, what would you advise? I don't think it's really changed that much. I mean, the one great thing is that, you know, everyone has access to cameras much easier nowadays and you can produce things for less money if you want to get started and, and, and create images or create or tell stories. But uh, as a cinematographer, I think, A, you just have to start shooting. I think everyone just and shoot as much as you can even though you might not think the story is maybe what you want to say or, or not you know, it's not all, it can't be all perfect. I don't think you can be that choosy at the beginning of your career. I think it's more important to just get experience, right? Because I feel like no matter, you know, no matter how smart you are, how talented you are, I still think it's, it's, it's an experience. Like you have to learn. You can have great taste, but you need to learn about it what the lights do and, and, and what you know their fusion does or gripping does, what you how you can create something really. That's that's something that takes time. And I think patience is a big thing, right? Nothing happens overnight. I mean there is overnight success. We all you know there is the, the example of the one person that does comes out of film school and 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 does the first movie and it wins Sundance and, and <laughs> the two of them are off doing huge movies and it happens, but in general, I think it just takes it takes time. It takes it took me like ten years really to to feel really comfortable and for people to look at me and go like I can trust him with my movie. I can trust you know it takes time, and I see it with very talented DPs around me, young ones. Like I have this friend of mine, Jeff Tomcho, who was my DIT for many years. He's such a talented DP. Started like in the last five years, slowly doing his own things and becoming a DP and doing great short films and documentaries and everything. And he gets frustrated sometimes and says like, why can't I get my break? And I always say to him, you have to be patient. It will happen. Like it will happen too. You know, if, if you have a passion for your for what you want to do and you're committed to it. It just takes time. It takes time for you to learn. It takes time for you people to really trust you, that they can trust you with the because there's a lot of money in involved in it, right? That that it just it just you have to build up your your body of work. And uh, I really and- it's great advice coming from you, especially after this conversation, because you mentioned that you you didn't think you were the right you didn't think with run the rundown for example you weren't sure that they would take a chance on you but you knew you were ready for it and i think that uh people often think they're ready before they are right yeah yeah <laughs> and it, it just i mean there's people I, I'm, I you know there is obviously there's examples of people that make it much faster but i really do believe in it's it's something that you just have to gain the experience and the more you shoot the more you you get experience you know i see with camera systems as you know they work their way out but i always go like you know you can work for 10 years as a camera system. you can have to start again at the beginning 
when you when you become a DP, you're gonna have to work your way up again, right? So I, in a sense, I always say, if you really want to be a DP, just become a DP, right? Start shooting whatever you get, short films, anything you can do, anything you can yeah. shoot, and just get in there and start building your body of work. Because you know, even as an operator, I mean, yes, you can. You know, as an operator, sometimes the switch over is easier because you work with directors that kind of trust you then. And, but in general, I find you have to go out and start shooting and build your resume and build your showreel. And, uh, and it takes time. It doesn't happen fast. I mean, I remember sitting around for like three, four months sometimes, not, not being able to do anything. And, uh, and it was really frustrating. And we, with my friends from film school, and we sit around and go like, how can we make something? What can we make? Now, I mean... My daughter is becoming a director, my daughter Aisha, and uh, she just did a, during COVID time in my house, she did a short film because she wanted to do something and she did it for like $5,000, right? And she got yeah. my friend Jeff Thompson to shoot it. We shot two nights at my house and, and it's a beautiful piece that looks like a $100,000 movie. She could do it with like little money. And yeah. That we couldn't do at the time, right? I mean, I That's an opportunity out. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah There's definitely. more availability of, of gear yeah. and of quality. Yeah. yeah but uh, be patient. And it's uh, I think it's the best job on a movie set, quite honestly. I love it. I, yeah. Well, it comes across. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Tobias for being on the podcast. I want to remind you before I forget or you forget to be sure to rate the podcast. Please give us five stars. And if you think we only deserve one, give us one and then leave a comment and let us know why, because we'd love to hear it. You can also email us questions for our weekly No Film School podcast roundup of news, industry, tech, and otherwise questions you have at ask at nofilmschool.com. We always want to hear from you. We have a lot of cool stuff going up on No Film School every day, as always. I really want to direct your attention towards our gear guides. We are breaking down all kinds of gear that is available to filmmakers on the market. Variance in price, use case, what you'll like about them, what you might not like about them, what we like about them. It's a new thing we're doing, and we've got a lot of stuff that we've researched, and hopefully these will be really valuable to all of you. And of course, check out all of our other interviews on the podcast. We have spoken to so many great DPs, Maddie Lee Batik, Faden Papa Michael, to name just a few. So be sure to dive into the history and uh, learn from all these greats and tolerate my voice while you're at it, if you don't mind. <laughs> Thanks so much. 